Well, good morning. Uh, as you can tell by how well people know that bumper video, we've been in the book of Romans for quite some time now. Uh, and who knows, maybe we'll just carry the same song into whatever sermon series we're doing next. Okay, there we go. Uh, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and find Romans chapter 10. Uh, my name's Terry Lee. If we haven't met yet, it's uh, such a great opportunity, a privilege to be able to worship with you and continue our worship as we study God's Word together. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, I want you to know that we would love to gift you one. And so as you're heading out um, right after the gathering, there will be some Bibles on our Connect table. Feel free to pick one of those up. Um, take one to a friend if you'd like. Uh, there are guest bags over there. So if this is your first Sunday here or you're here and you haven't picked one of those up yet, uh, we would love to give you one just to say, hey, thanks for joining us and worshiping with us. Um, if you have a prayer card, a connect card, please take an opportunity to fill those out. We love to be able to follow up with you throughout the week, and that's the easiest way that we know how to do that. Now, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 10, which uh, some portions of will be very familiar to you. Uh, this is a passage that really deals with um, what, does it, what does it take to be saved? What does it take to be right with God? How does a person become right with God. And I think this is an important question for us because we live in a culture where I think people are constantly trying to make themselves right. Um, many of us, maybe even this week, have been in a setting where we wish we could be perfect, where we wish that uh, we could measure up to the person next to us or the expectations that our boss or our parent or our professor may have. We live kind of in this constant desire to be perfectly right and to be perfect. Uh, there was actually a, an article that I stumbled across this week that was written in 2018, so it's a little dated uh, at this point, but I think the principle carries nonetheless. Um, and this article in USA Today uh, was basically conveying the point that throughout the past 30 years or so, the desire to be perfect and this feeling of necessary uh, perfectionism has actually grown in our culture. And maybe you would agree with that, just as you've thought through your own life. Uh, they actually took 27 years from 1989 to 2016, and they surveyed 40,000 college students. And what they realized is that over 27 years, there were three signs of kind of this perfectionism that grew over time. Uh, the first sign was this, this feeling that everybody around you expects you to do everything right. And they realized that over 27 years, that feeling, that perception increased by 33% in people. That everybody around, around you expects you to do the right thing the very first time, right? To, to answer the question right, uh, you know, as you're completing that project for work, for do it the, doing it the right way. Not only that, it's interesting that it actually, it, it poured out into the relationships that people had with others. Because they realized that your desire or the college student's desire for other people to be perfect increased by 16%. So you want everybody around you to always do the right thing and to not be flawed in any way. That, that increased by 16% over those 27 years. And finally, they realized that one's own desire to never make a mistake but to always get it right increased by 10%. Now, here's the interesting thing, uh, as this was, this was all conducted by the American Psychological Association, and here's what they found. Here's what one of the researchers remarked after reviewing these results. He said, today, people are competing with each other in order to meet societal pressures to succeed, and they feel that perfectionism is necessary in order to feel safe, socially connected, and of any worth. People today feel like perfectionism is necessary. Why? For security, right? If I can get everything right, then, then, then maybe, maybe my job will be secure. Maybe my grades will be secure. Like there will be this sense of security that I'm able to build around myself by constantly being perfect, always getting it right, always having it together. Not only that, to feel safe, to feel socially connected. Right, if anyone else is going to want to be around me, then I can have no flaws. I have to be completely perfect. And how often does, has that created kind of this facade of genuine relationships? And finally, to feel that you are of any worth, that you matter to anyone. Like your worth is dependent upon 
your success level in, in various tasks or projects. Now, I think that's important for us to see that on a cultural and societal level, because then the question becomes, well, what if we, if we bring that same kind of thinking into our relationship with God? What happens if we begin to think that the only way that we can truly feel secure in our relationship with God is by being completely perfect? What if we, we take this stance that, that we see in culture and we say, well, if I'm truly to be of any worth to God, to have any relationship and any assurance in that relationship, I have to get everything right all the time. Well, I think it leads to, to two things. One, it can lead to uh, an effort mindset where you're just thinking, okay, I have to constantly do for God. I have to be really religious and I have to constantly, you know, kind of keep things the right way and, in order to earn God's love and affection. And say, well, that's, that's not what the Bible prescribes. Or it could be apathy. You say, well, you know what, if, if, if there's, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, ladder to climb to be right with God, and I'm constantly messing up, and I can never quite get it right, well, then what's the point? If that is God's standard, then there is no way that he could ever love someone like me. And what we see in Romans 10 is that it's neither. Uh, that the, there is a great standard of righteousness that is required and yet, God has accomplished for you all that is required of you. That's the gospel. That's a great, great message that we sing about, we pray about, we celebrate about, we have conversations with other people about, because this will never get old, and we need it every single day. So if you were to summarize uh, chapter 10 of Romans, verses 1 through 13, I think it would look something like this, that we can't save ourselves but God saves everyone who calls upon him. We can't save ourselves, but God saves everyone who calls upon him. The message of the gospel is that you can't make yourself righteous, but you can be made righteous. You can't make yourself righteous, but you can be made righteous. Now, as we get into Romans 10, it's important for us to understand the context of what's going on. Uh, whenever we, you know, left Romans 8, we, we were just kind of, you know, encouraged by all of these great promises. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're now an adopted child of the Lord. Uh, you are now, you know, completely indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So you're able to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Uh, there is nothing that could ever revoke the promises of God to you and the love of God for you. I mean, just all of these wonderful things that Romans 8 says. But Paul anticipates that some might have a question because those same kind of promises were made to the people of Israel. And as, as you're reading through the book of Romans and you consider the culture in Rome and you look around, many people might say, well, not all people that are, that are Israelites have, have confessed faith in Christ. So you're saying that, that God made these promises to the people of Israel, and now whenever we look at those in the context of the first century who were God's people, there are some of them that have not received the fruit of these promises because they're not following Christ. Paul, what do you do with this? And that's, that's what he goes into in Romans 9. He says, well, being Israel is, is not simply a matter of ethnicity. It's about the spiritual condition of someone's heart. He looks back in Scripture, and as we'll even see in Deuteronomy 30, that there was, there was a moment in which Moses said that being, being one of God's people is a matter of the heart, not just outward circumcision, but this inward change that takes place. Paul picks up that same language in Romans 2, and then repeats it in Romans 9 by saying, truly, Israel are those, not, not just ethnically Israel, but those who call upon the name of the Lord. That's how you see people that were not Israel throughout the Old Testament, like, you know, the, the Egyptians who went out with Israel in the Exodus, or uh, the story of Rahab or Ruth, those who were foreigners to God's promise, now invited in and welcomed as recipients of this same promise. And so people would say, well, okay, so, so I understand that. Then who is saved? And what Paul is going to say in Romans 10 is that anyone, be it Jew or Gentile, who calls upon the name of the Lord and trusts in Christ, they will be saved. And so what I want us to see in this passage are three observations. And with each of those observations, I'm going to give you two responses for application. 
All right, so uh, we're going to look at what the text says, and then we're going to see the way that we respond just kind of out of the posture of our heart in response to what God's Word has said. Uh, So with that being said, let's look at verses 10, 1 through 4. We'll just start there, and then we'll keep going. God's Word says, Brothers, this is Paul talking, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The first observation that we will see in this passage is the conflict between Christ's work and work's righteousness. There's a conflict between Christ's work, what Christ has done, And then us trying to earn our own righteousness through our works. Those things cannot go together. Those things cannot coexist. And whenever we look at Romans 10, the first thing that we hear from Paul is this heartfelt desire that the Jews would be saved. Now, by God's grace, many of the Jews saw Christ as the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and promises, and they trusted in him, and they were saved. Paul is evidence of that. One who was a Jew of Jews— and, and here he hears the promises of God and he believes and is saved. But Paul's heart is also broken for his kinsmen who, who have heard about Christ and then rejected this good news. They have been so zealous to earn their own righteousness, to make themselves self-righteous by trying to keep the commands of the law, by trying to do what God has commanded, that they have rejected the work of Christ and chosen their own work, their own effort instead. And so what is Paul's heart? His heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That was Paul's desire. Now let me ask, is that your desire for your unbelieving friends and neighbors? Is that the desire of your heart? So often our prayers reveal what's truly going on in your heart. What you desire. Is it your desire that those who do not know Christ around you would be saved, would have a relationship with God. What I want you to see in this passage is that Paul's heart for those who did not know Christ, the the anguish that he feels for those who do not know Christ and know Christ pales in comparison to Christ's heart for you when you were dead in your sin. Whenever Christ thought about the fact that you were a sheep without a shepherd— that you were wandering and on a path to death and hell. His heart broke with compassion over you. Consider that for a moment. That the eternal Son of God stepped down from his throne to take upon the cross to draw you near to him. That he was crucified as the Son of God so that you could be a son or daughter of God. See, once that truth takes hold of your heart... You begin to pray prayers like Paul prays here. You desire that those around you that have not experienced this love, this grace, this mercy would. As Christians, our motivation to to share this gospel message with other people isn't obligation or guilt or to check a box. It is because we've experienced this love of Christ to us. And now we want it to be made known through us to other people. And so here we, we, we take note of Christ's love for us. We see it in the prayers of Paul. So we beg that God would save our family members. We pray that God would save our children. We ask that God in his great mercy would save our coworkers and friends and those who we don't even know yet who don't know Christ. Now, you might be thinking about this passage in light of what we've learned in Romans 9. And you're thinking, well, if God is sovereign over salvation— then why pray for the salvation of others? If God is sovereign over salvation, then why, why would we pray whenever it comes to the salvation of others? And we see right here that God ordains, as, a, as an aspect of his sovereignty, that we would pray in alignment with his desire to save. That as we pray that God would save, that God does save. And that any time that God is is bringing about salvation in the life of someone, he's also ordaining that someone is praying for that person's salvation. 
I mean, think about it for a moment. If you were to, you know, go to the grocery store today and pick up an apple, you know, off the shelf and begin to eat it, you know, well, take it home, buy it, take it home, wash it, eat it. You can eat that apple today because God ordained in his sovereignty that two to three years ago, there was a farmer somewhere that would plant the seed that would one day become that apple, right? So we, we pray as a part of God's ordained means to plant seeds in the life of people to one day bring about salvation. And there is no contradiction here, but that as God is laying on your heart the desire to pray for someone, that could be one of the first steps that is being taken to bring that person into a loving relationship with him. Now, just kind of by way of application, I once heard a pastor ask this question, which was really convicting to me. And he, he said, if if every person, uh, or if God answered every one of your prayers this week, how many people would now be in the kingdom of God that weren't last week? If God was to answer all of your prayers this week, every single prayer that you prayed, how many people would be in the kingdom of God this week that were not in the kingdom of God last week? How often do you pray for the salvation of others? Now, while this often is, is used to really, you know, kind of bring about a gut check, I think it was an encouragement for me as I considered our church. Whenever I looked through the prayer cards this week, uh, praying through them, 23 prayer cards that were turned in from last Sunday had someone else's name on them. Someone was saying, hey, you know, I'm praying for my neighbor, pray for my coworker, pray for the student I'm leading in Young Life, pray for my family member. Like, I am encouraged that our church has a heart for the lost because Christ's heart broke for us when we were lost. I am encouraged that our church says God has placed me where I'm at with a desire for others to be saved. And so, Lord, use me. I'll be faithful. Use me there. Here we find that, that Paul's heart breaks for those who don't know Christ. And sometimes we feel the same way. What we see in, in verse 2 is that he, he bears witness of the Jews that have rejected Christ, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, whenever you consider those around you that don't know Christ, or maybe where you once were, people are all over the map. And so there are some people that, you know, really don't want anything to do with the message of the gospel. Some people may hear, you know, Jesus died for your sins, and they think, I don't really think my sins are that big of a deal. Like, that kind of seems like an overreaction. And if that's where somebody's at, then it's really difficult for them to understand just what Christ has done in this message of salvation. Other people are like, I don't, you know, I'm unconcerned about God. I don't know if there is a God. Other people might just, you know, be agnostic and they're not really curious. So that's, that's where some people are on this spectrum. And yet then there are other people who rightly diagnose the problem and feel the guilt of sin. They feel the shame that sin brings, and they, they know that, maybe they even know that there is a God in which they are not in right standing, and they need to be in right standing with that God. But sometimes their response is, okay, well, then I just have to do a lot of the right things to get that God to love me. And what Paul says here is that sometimes that zeal can actually be a barrier to the gospel. Like sometimes that zeal and that desire and effort to make yourself self-righteous can make it more difficult to say, you can't be righteous at all. Only Christ can make you righteous. And that's why he diagnoses the problem here is that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a zeal, but not according to knowledge? Well, I think uh, there are two different ways that, that I could explain this. So uh, there was a particular time in my life whenever I was in elementary school that I had great zeal without much knowledge. Uh, I was, you know, playing for the basketball team at the local rec center. Uh, if you've seen me play basketball, you know that I did not continue um, investing in my development in that sport. Uh, so I was playing with the local church league. We practiced on the half court in our gymnasium. And uh, what happened is whenever we went to the game at the rec league, uh, it was on a full court. And so, uh, you know, you probably see where this is going. I, you know, the, the opponent attempted the shot. It bounced off. I got the rebound. It was my time. I was under the basket. I was overly zealous. And I just shoot it. And to my surprise, it goes in. And I was pumped. And I give like a fist pump, look to the rest of my team, and no one else was as excited as I was. 
Why? Because whenever I looked at the scoreboard, our score did not change, and the other team got two points. All right, I was overly zealous. I was thinking, hey, if I score this basket, like, we'll be good to go, and, you know, my team will be cheering for me. And in my zeal, I had actually made things worse because it was a zeal without knowledge. A zeal without knowledge can also be harmful to other people. Uh, because because if, if you think about something like, you know, having a great zeal, you say, you know what, um, I want this person to know that I love them, so I'm going to make a plate of peanut butter cookies for them. And unbeknownst to yourself, they have a nut allergy. And so you take, a, uh, you know, you take this plate of peanut butter cookies to them, and you ask, is this sincere? Oh, it's extremely sincere. Uh, is it, you know, something that's sacrificial? Did it cost you time and effort and energy and money? Yeah, it did. Um, is, it, is it something that would be admirable to other people that would look at this? And people would say, oh, that's so kind of them to take their time and effort and they go over there. And yet it's actually potentially deadly for the person that you drop those cookies off to. You see, there can be great zeal and yet without knowledge, it can be extremely harmful and painful to others. What Paul says, says here is that the Jews that didn't trust Christ they, they had great zeal for God. They wanted to do things for God and yet lacked knowledge. That's why verse 3, Paul says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They thought that one was made righteous in God's eyes by doing all of the right things. And what we, what we learn in the book of Romans is that righteousness has never been earned by perfectly keeping God's law. I mean, think back to Abraham. As Paul talked about in Romans 4, he doesn't reiterate the whole argument here, but he said that Abraham was declared righteous by his faith. Because he trusted the promises of God, he was declared righteous. How was, how was this hero in the faith made righteous? It was because he trusted the promises of God. And, and what was spoken by God to Abraham is now exclaimed by Christ to the Jews that by trusting in Christ, you are made righteous. One of the, one of the places that you would look for the heart of Paul's argument throughout this entire letter is Romans 1, 16 through 17, where he introduces the gospel of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Look at what Romans 1.17 says. It says, for in it, being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, some people thought that this righteousness of God meant the standard that God requires and the standard that God requires alone. This is why someone like Martin Luther, for a long time, whenever he read this, this passage and this statement incited fear in his heart. And yet, what this passage means, whenever we see that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, is that it not only reveals the righteous and just standard that God requires, that he is holy and completely holy, and to be in his presence, you must be perfectly righteous. But the gospel also reveals the gift of God's righteousness to all who believe based upon the work of Christ. Romans 1.17 goes on to say that this gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith for faith, from faith to faith. This is another way of saying it's faith from start to finish. Faith is the hand by which you take hold of this gift of God's righteousness given to you through Christ. And it is by faith that this right standing with God is applied throughout the entire Christian life. The righteousness of God is revealed, not as something to achieve or earn, but as a gift that has been given in response to the standard that God requires. Which leads Paul to say in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This word end here could be translated both as the goal of the law, right? The law was always pointing us to realize that we could not perfect ourselves, we couldn't be perfect, but that Christ would come and that he would fulfill every aspect of the law, that Christ is the ultimate goal that the law was pointing to. It was always pointing past itself. 
I mean, think about this. Think about the sacrificial system that God instituted, saying, this is how you live as someone who walks with me, but you won't be able to perfectly do this. And when you mess up, there is a way for your sins to be atoned for. It was never live completely like this without any error. He even made a system so that whenever there was sin, sin could be atoned for. All pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God. And it's also, Christ is the end of the law in the the law has no bearing on the believer any longer because, because there are no more sacrifices to be made. Christ has come as the final sacrifice. So if there is to be any atonement for our sin, we look back to what Christ has already done, not something that we now have to do. And so what is our response to this work of Christ in light of, of the inability of our own works righteousness. One, we, we confess our inability. Uh, we say we, we can't make ourselves righteous. And sometimes we try to compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to who we used to be. We try to fix ourselves. And in humility, we say, I can't make myself righteous. Even in the Christian life, repentance is, is a daily part of treasuring God's grace to you. To say, Lord, I want to please you. And by the Holy Spirit in me, I want to walk in a way that is in accordance with your will. But Lord, I realize how far I have to go. And thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Because I am so unable to live in a way that you have, have made me to live in. And yet one day in your presence, I will perfectly live in this way. We confess our inability. And we also rely upon Christ's capability. Christ has done it all. He cries out on the cross, it is finished because he has accomplished everything needed for our salvation. Let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions to examine if you're truly relying upon Christ's capability. How do you respond to your sin? Whenever you know that you've just really blown it, how do you respond? Do you repent and say, Lord, help me to turn from this sin? Or do you punish yourself for it? Think, oh, you know what? I messed up. I, you know, I'm going to deny myself or, you know, do this thing that feels like it brings about pain so that God knows that I'm really sorry. Or do you completely repent and trust in Christ? Here's another one. Do you look at your progress and sanctification, your growth in the Christian life, to determine your standing with God? Do you look to your sanctification, your growth, your progress, your ability to keep God's commands to dis determine your right standing with God. Oh, God must really love me this week because of all of these things that I've done this week that were right. Or God must not love me this week because all of these things that I've messed up. Both of those are relying on your ability and not Christ's capability in your place. Here's the truth to hold on to. Your right standing with God is not based upon your sanctification. Your sanctification is based upon your right standing with God. So your right standing with God is not based upon your sanctification, your ability to do the right things in the right way and, and grow and look more like Christ. No, your sanctification, the ability to grow and to become more like Christ is based upon your right standing with God and what Christ has already accomplished. Here's another one. If someone was to ask you, what makes you right with God? Is your first response to point them to what Christ did or what you have done? What makes you right with God? You say, well, because I go to church every Sunday and because, you know, I was baptized. Like, is it, is it about what you have done or is it about what Christ has done? And finally, do you obey God out of fear of punishment or because you know what Christ has done and in response to that? Like, do you just obey because you're like, man, if I don't obey, then, you know, God's really going to come down hard on me and, you know, or do you obey God because you're like, man, my sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ, and now I want to live in honor of him. The second observation we see in this passage is the content of the gospel message throughout Scripture. I love Romans 10 for a reason that I didn't know that I would love Romans 10 going into sermon prep this week. And it's because of the continuity of Scripture and the message of salvation that is seen from start to finish throughout the Bible. Here you see just how much God has woven into Scripture the fact that our salvation would always be a gift of God and not something earned. So let's read verses 5 through 10. 
God's word says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here we see the content of the gospel message throughout Scripture. Uh, Paul is supporting the argument that he made in verse 4, that statement that Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. And in verse 5, Paul quotes um, something that Moses said in Leviticus 18.5, where it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, Moses said this in Leviticus 18 after the Israelites were already delivered from the, uh, from the Egyptians and delivered from the oppression in Egypt. All right, so they're already, they're already walking out. And this passage of Scripture, if you look at it in context, God says, the Lord is your God, so the righteous shall live by faith. I am the Lord your God. All right, so he bookends both of these by saying, you have a relationship with me. So now live in this way. And then he says again, now don't forget you belong to me. Now Moses did not write this as a way to convey that we make ourselves right by perfectly keeping the law. By no means is that what he meant. He was saying as, as a part of you know, receiving God's blessing and living in his presence, live in light of this law. And as said before, whenever you mess up, there's atoning sacrifices that can be made for sin. And yet what happened is over time, people began to skew what Moses said. And they said, well, this means not like live by them as in live in this way, but you will inherit eternal life if you perfectly keep these commands. And here Paul is, Paul is showing throughout the entirety of the letter of Romans that that's not accurate. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even if a person could say, I can earn my own righteousness by keeping this law, we are completely incapable of doing it. No one has done this. So, so what, is, what is Paul saying here? Well, it's actually not that you have to earn your righteousness through keeping the law, but that God has done something else to make you righteous. If you look at verses 6 through 7, we read, but the righteousness based on faith, righteousness is received by faith, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Here, whenever Paul says, do not say in your heart, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 9. And this is important because for the Jewish hearer, it would kind of draw up everything that was going on in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 9. If you have time, maybe this afternoon, I would say go back and read Deuteronomy 9. Go read Deuteronomy 29 through 30 and see some of these things that Paul is saying here. Whenever he says, do not say in your heart, it would be similar to us in our culture, maybe hearing the words, Houston, we have a problem. Right? You know that if someone says that, that they're, they're saying, okay, there was something unexpected that just took place that I wasn't ready for. But it also kind of pulls up everything that happened from, you know, the, the spaceship, was it Apollo 11? Where, I have it in my notes and I'm just, I don't know. Where, 13, Apollo 13. It was either 11 or 13. Whenever they say, Houston, we have a problem and they're communicating, hey, there was an explosion on this spaceship that, you know, could have completely ruined our ability to get home. They're just kind of pulling all of that up. Well, Paul says, do not say in your heart. And that phrase, even though it might seem simple to us, is drawing back from Deuteronomy 9, where God told the Israelites, he said, hey, do not say in your heart that we are getting into the promised land because of our perfect adherence to the law. Uh, we're not, don't, don't say in your heart that you're going to be able to destroy the Canaanites because you've been so righteous in the eyes of God. No, even entering into the promised land will be evidence of God's grace for you. And then Paul cites another familiar passage, drawing from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. 
And then he interprets it in light of Christ. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, Moses said, being righteous isn't about going up into heaven and, and trying to climb this ladder to get to God. It's not about going into the earth and, and discovering something or doing something difficult to earn God's righteousness. Now Paul takes those same phrases from Deuteronomy 30 and applies them here. He says, you don't have to go up into heaven as if to bring Christ down to say, Jesus, please come and fulfill the demands of the law in my place and die on the cross for me. He says, Christ has already done that. He says, you don't have to go down into the earth and raise Christ up from the dead because Christ is already raised and seated at the right hand of the Father and declared that you are now forgiven. You don't have to do those things, but by faith, what God has already done for you can be applied to you. And so Paul says that it is by this word of faith, this word that is near you in your mouth and in your heart that you can be saved. And he's about to show how the confession of the mouth and the disposition of the heart is a part of our salvation and the, God, and the work that God is doing in our lives. How is Moses able to say this? Because he's pointing to a future day. In Deuteronomy 29, uh, Moses gives the entirety of what's going to take place in the Old Testament. He says, I'm, he says, God is going to bring you into the promised land. And whenever you're in the promised land and you're facing plenty and things are going well, uh, then, then you're actually going to turn to idols. And whenever you turn to idols, God is going to judge you. And he's going to take you out of the promised land into exile. Whenever you are in exile, uh, God is going to do an amazing work. And one day, God will bring about his spirit. He will pour out his spirit on you. Your hearts will be changed and you will long to follow him. And the day that he was pointing forward to came when Christ was crucified, raised again, and the spirit was given to the church. And so Paul here is saying that this word is near to us. The ability to grasp this righteousness by faith is nearer than it has ever been. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live what we see here is that God wasn't after external conformity. He was after a change in the heart. Paul picks up that same language in Romans 2 whenever he says that being a Jew isn't merely being a Jew outwardly, but having an inward change of the heart that God would make you a new creation. And so we find that we can't earn our righteousness. So then the question is, how can we be declared righteous? And the answer comes in verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We find here the gospel message that is both an invitation and a promise. It offers rest to those who are exhausted by thinking they have to earn their way to God. It offers assurance to the pers person that is never quite sure if they are right with God or not. And this message says, this is how you know that you are saved. It offers freedom to the person that feels enslaved by sin. It offers hope to those who feel like they are far beyond saving. It offers instruction to those who are lost and misguided. It offers grace to sinners. And it is good news to everyone who hears and takes this message to heart. You see, in the, in the previous verses, Paul talks about the ineffectiveness of zeal without knowledge. And, and here he points to what it truly means to take hold of Christ, to truly have this faith. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is both a matter of admitting that Jesus is Lord and by that declaring that you understand both the doctrine and devotion to him. Now, what is the doctrine that is implied whenever we say that Jesus is Lord? Now, we are saying that we believe that Jesus is God. He is equal with the Father, that he is king over all creation, that he has done what only God could do. Jesus is Lord. It's a matter of, of doctrine, understanding who he is, that he rose from the dead. And by saying that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that is kind of the, the crowning aspect of his work, 
And so inherent is in that is believing the other things that are true of Christ necessary to be saved. If you say, I believe that someone finished this marathon, then it is inherent in that that you are believing that they began that marathon, they, they ran mile seven, they ran mile 26. Whenever you say that you believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, then you are confessing that he, as the eternal son of God, took on flesh came and lived the life that we couldn't live, that he died in our place. If there is to be a resurrection, there must be an atoning death. And so to say that I believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead is to confess this true doctrine about him. But to confess that Jesus is Lord is to also say, I'm completely devoting myself to him. I'm no longer Lord over my life. Christ is Lord over my life. He is now seated on the throne of my heart. He changes my desires and dictates the way that I live because I now trust him with the entirety of my being. It is to confess that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. So is it simply a matter of just saying these things about God, saying that, saying that Jesus is Lord and, and confessing these things and then you are saved? Well, we see throughout scripture that even the garrison demoniac falls before the feet of Jesus and says, what have you to do with us? Uh, oh, son of God, the most high. Well, we know that the demons confessed. James 2, 7 says that the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. And yet we know that they are not saved. So, so what, what is truly at play here? Not simply a matter of confession, not simply a matter of actions, but what God is truly doing in the heart and that this springs from genuine belief in the heart. There's this startling statement from Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in which he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I remember the first time I read this passage, it shocked me. I think the word that shocked me the most was many. That there will be many on the day that they stand before Christ and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many works in your name? They will show Jesus pictures of the mission trips that they went on or evidence of their giving statement. You'll say, but I, but I never knew you. They will, they will tell Jesus about all the things that they never did. Jesus, I, I never got drunk. I never lied on my taxes. Like, I, I've tried to be good. They will hold before Christ all of their false hopes of righteousness. And he will say, but I never knew you. Why? Because what matters is not simply a confession of the mouth or actions done in Christ's name, but a genuine relationship with the living God. This word know, it, it depicts a a relationship in which it goes past just facts. You can know someone if they have a Wikipedia page or a social media account, but to truly know someone is for them to look at you and say, I know you. Do you know Christ? Have you been justified, made right with him? Have you been saved by Christ? To be saved is to take hold of the work of Christ through faith. What does it look like to have faith? What is one thing to, to understand aerodynamics or to know that a lot of people have stepped on an airplane, perhaps to use a familiar example? It's one thing to, to know that, that thousands of flights go out of airports all around the world every single day, but this is a completely different type of knowledge to leave the jet bridge, find your seat on that plane and trust that a machine that weighs nearly 500 tons can carry you safely thousands of feet above the earth. That's the difference between knowledge, belief, and real trust and faith. Do you believe that Christ alone is sufficient to make you right with God? Have you confessed that with your mouth? Have you believed that with your heart? The response to this is first to rejoice in the availability of salvation. Rejoice in the availability of salvation. I mean, think about something as silly as reality TV shows in our day where to win a million dollars, you have to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and you have to be really smart. Or, you know, if you want to be the best American Ninja Warrior, you have to be super athletic. Like there are these, these things that are required to, 
to win those kind of competitions, to get the prize. I mean, even something, uh, you know, like the show The Bachelor. If you want to get a rose, you have to be impressive and attractive. Like there, there are all of these qualities that you have to, to do to get chosen by, by this person who you know, barely knows anything about you. And yet God, knowing all of our sin, all of our faults, and all of our failures, says anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes will be saved. Is this not of far more worth than millions of dollars? It won't wilt, but it is eternal. There's great availability of salvation that God has accomplished for you all that is required of you. Second, treasure the accessibility of God. We're told here that the word of faith is not far off. God is not far off from you. If that is true of you in your sin, when you were an enemy of God crying out for salvation, how much more true of that is that for you who now relate to God as father, as a child? Treasure the accessibility of God in prayer, in his word, in his community. In the midst of your suffering, Christ is present to give you comfort. In the midst of your wandering, Christ is there calling you back home. In the midst of your confusion, Christ is speaking through his word to give you guidance. Christ is present. So treasure this accessibility. The third observation we see in this passage is the call of salvation for everyone that believes. The call of salvation for everyone that believes. Look at verse 11 with me. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that everyone who believes, that calls upon him, has access to this salvation. Paul here looks back at Isaiah 28, 16, whenever he says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you put your trust in him and say, you know what, I'm going to be more focused on what Christ has done for me than what I can do to earn my standing before God, you will not be put to shame on the day of judgment. No, it's understanding that on the cross, Christ was put to shame in your place so that you could have great confidence. Not only that, he says there is no distinction now between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. We are all sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ is the Savior of all who call on him, regardless of your ethnicity or your religious background or your socioeconomic level or any other descriptor that the world might give you. You can say, because I am a sinner in need of grace, I can call upon the name of the Lord and I can be saved. He bestows his riches on all who call upon him. And then we read that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that Paul is once again pulling this passage from an Old Testament quotation, Joel 2.32, where Joel prophesies that one day when people call upon the name of the Lord, that they will be saved. That promise was true in the context of Joel, that everybody who called upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and that that promise would last through the generations so that anyone who called upon the name of the Lord would be saved. He is now equating Christ to the Lord. He is, he is saying, you know what, this, this promise that was given for the people of Israel to trust in Yahweh can be readily applied to Christ who came. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Only God could give that promise. Uh, only God could make an eternal promise that would not change through Joel, through the book of Acts, through Romans, and still be held today, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord at any moment will be saved. Only God can make this promise because he is inexhaustible. His forgiveness and grace, his love will not run out. The extent of Christ's blood for those who call upon him for salvation cannot be exhausted. He is unchanging. There's no fine print here. Uh, there's no extent in which his grace will run out. And he is present to all who call upon his name. So everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that the first time that this passage is quoted in the New Testament is in Peter's sermon in Acts. 
where, where he is quoting that the spirit will be poured out and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And one of the things that I love the most about this passage being quoted then is that Paul, who's writing this right now in Romans, was not a Christian yet when Peter was preaching this sermon in Acts. That Paul himself would be evidence that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. This wasn't hypothetical for him. He was someone who completely trusted in his own righteousness until the grace of God showed up to him, convicted him of his sin before God, and he completely trusted in Christ. So what is our response? We declare the possibility that anyone can be saved. So keep praying, keep sharing, keep loving, keep serving. As long as you have breath, God is not done making his message known through you. So declare the possibility that anyone can be saved. Not only that, I would say declare the full counsel of the gospel. Don't shy away from the fact that we are all sinners in need of a savior, that heaven is real, but so is hell. Declare the fullness of this gospel message. Our second response is to embrace the responsibility of following Christ. If he is Lord, if we have called upon him as Lord and we have received this salvation, we should now live different as those who have been saved. What does that look like for you? Maybe it's publicly declaring this relationship with Christ through baptism. Maybe it's saying, I I recognize that having the Lord over my life is not something that I do in isolation, but that I need to belong to a church community where I'm being fed and grown and cared for and held accountable. And maybe that would be the oaks. We see that Paul criticized those who were self-righteous for uh, placing their zeal over their knowledge. Whenever you consider your lordship to Christ, which one of those do you gravitate toward the most? Zeal or knowledge? Are you someone who's like, you know, I want to go, I want to serve, I want to do all of the things for Christ? But yet, if you were to consider how you've grown in knowledge and meditated on the word and discussed with other believers, you'd say, you know, I, I really don't feel like I've I've learned much about God. Maybe you need to focus more on knowledge. Maybe you're someone who loves knowledge. You love reading good books. You love, you know, kind of discussing the the more difficult matters of scripture with people. And you'd say, you know what? But if it comes to just sacrificial generosity or practicing hospitality to others or making this gospel known, I would say it's been more knowledge than any zeal. What would it look like to say, Lord, help me to be obedient in both. This passage declares to us not only the opportunity of salvation, but the necessity of salvation. You see, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but there is no other name that can be called upon to bring salvation. In Acts 4, whenever Peter was brought before the council, whenever they were trying him and saying, who are you performing these miracles in the name of? What is going on here? Peter declares this, that in none other is there salvation, for neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men wherein we must be saved. May we have an urgency as we think about those who have yet to hear the name or to understand what it means to call upon the name of the one who saves. May we treasure the accessibility of the one who saves, who saw us in our darkness and on a path to death and came to save us. May we be those who pray for the lost, who praise God for our salvation and come together that all in Cincinnati and the world would have the opportunity to hear this message and to call upon the Lord who saves. Let's pray.